Hey everyone, welcome to Ask Shane Anything. This is our second live installment of the show recording here on Zoom. Uh, this recording is a reward for our patrons who pledge $7 or more per month every month at our Patreon at patreon.com slash sifted. Everyone gets to watch it, but only the patrons who pledge at that level or higher get to get involved with our Zoom call. And I'm very happy to see we have more people here already than we had last month. Uh, we only had a few people show up the first time, and I get it. It's a new thing, and people maybe didn't didn't remember or just didn't make an appointment to show up. But we already, just getting started, have more people this week than we did la last time. So really excited about that. And this is a Q&A. You guys can ask me anything, just like the show says. It doesn't have to be about games. It can be about literally anything. Um, maybe you need help with your calculus homework. or <laughs> Don't ask me about that. <laughs> I took pre-calc in high school and uh, yeah, I didn't do so well. Even though I was like a math genius before that, I'd actually been to like math field days. Did you guys have that when you guys were going to school? Was that even a thing anymore? Like math competitions where like you go in a room and like they give you a bunch of problems and like everyone would have to solve them? No, everyone's shaking their head no. So <laughs> I guess I just dated myself. But anyway, you guys can ask about anything you want, uh, just as long as it's not too crazy personal. Uh, games, movie, TV, film, sports, whatever. Uh, behind the scenes stuff, it's sifted, anything that you want. So let's see. I guess I'll pick somebody for the first question. Um, how about you, Jeff? Jeff is Jay Lynn on the site and on Patreon, right? That's right. That's yeah. me. Welcome to the show, man. And thank you for all your support through the years. I really appreciate it. What's your question? Oh, oh man, that's nothing. Like you've you've given me so much. It's pennies. Now, do you know like, me from comparison. the game trailers days or did you just find the Patreon? Oh, no. Um, I followed you since Invisible Walls back when it was um, audio only. Oh, wow. So and from then, the very first episode of Invisible Walls then. Right. And then after you left, I didn't know what to do. Ah. <laughs> and, then, and then a year later, I just Googled you because I'm like, where the hell is Shane? And yeah. then just by pure luck, you and Marcus started this. Yeah, I was gone for a while. That wasn't the plan, by the way. The plan was like, I was going to leave game trailers and go and live with my dad for a while because um, I had not seen my dad in forever. Um, he had never come out here and he lives him. He and my mother had been divorced pretty much my whole life and they live pretty far apart. So even if I would go home to visit my mom, where most of my family was, it was always a big trek to go see my dad. Uh, so I wasn't able to see him like all the time. So uh, when I left, the plan was to go to just live with my dad for a few months and just reconnect with him and get to know him again. And he had been working on a car for like, he had retired and he was building this really cool, like topless roadster. Um, by from scratch, literally from scratch, he built everything, the suspension, the frame, built it, built a car, his own unique car. And he had just kind of stalled on the project. He didn't have a lot of money to finish it. He didn't have a lot of people to help him finish it. Uh, so I just moved there with him and just helped him finish his car. And it was great. Um, but while I was there, Brent was working on the site. And I had already met with him before I left. And we'd agreed to like the price to build it and the timeline. And all those timelines just got annihilated because he had a full-time job and he thought he was going to be able to commit more time to it than he could. It was not ideal. Like, I know, I think there were a lot of people like you who are like, where's Shane? And I was just gone for so long that they just were like, well, I guess he's not coming back, but I appreciate that uh, you stuck with it and you actually ended up finding me. So do you have a question for me? I do. Um, okay. So in one of your game faces, you talk about like um, IGN stealing, like some of game trailers, like video. Mm -hmm. And then like you would call them out on it. And now, then, do you mean um, video or like show ideas? 
Oh, um, I guess I was under the assumption like they were actually using like foot footage from game trailers and and putting it in their shows. No, that was Machinima. Machinima oh. was stealing literally our videos. So at game trailers, we we just had tons of exclusives. You probably remember every day if you went to game trailers, we had at least one trailer that was exclusive to game trailers that mm -hmm. you would have to wait. Most cases, 24 hours to get somewhere else. If it was something that Jeff Keighley and I worked on getting into the TV show on Spike, then a lot of times we'd have like a bigger window of exclusivity, like five days, because the show would air on like a Friday and we get it for like the whole weekend and then everyone else would publish it on Monday. And Machinima just started downloading and stealing our trailers and publishing them on YouTube. And one of the guys who worked there, who was their head of editorial at the time, I had known him for years and years and he had worked at magazines mostly before that. I'm not going to name him and shame him, um, but I knew him really well and we were friends. And in fact, we're still friends today, to be honest with you. Um, and I called him and I was like, what are you guys doing, man? I'm like, you're stealing our videos. And he's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, all our exclusives are up on your YouTube channel right now. And he at first he tried to deny it. And and after he you know, I took I sent him the URLs through an email while we were talking on the phone and he started looking at him and then he got defensive. It was like, well, what you guys are doing over there isn't right. And this isn't how things are supposed to work. This is a free market. And if I can get the video from you guys, then I can do whatever I want with it. It's turning like this huge argument. Um, and then ultimately what I ended up having to do was call the publishers and talk to them about it. And I was like, look, you know, they're refusing to take this stuff down. We have a deal with you guys uh, for exclusivity because how exclusivity worked at game trailers and most places is you talk to someone at PR or they contact you because they're interested in giving you the exclusive and you work out a deal on it. So like, for instance, if we got something big, like the first trailer for the new Assassin's Creed or whatever, we'd have a huge plan for that. We would like roll it out on game trailers or it would premiere first in game trailers TV with uh, or Jeff with Jeff Keighley. And then it would go to the website and then we'd have like, OK, and we're going to talk about the trailer on invisible walls and we're going to do like a top 10 list, like top 10 best weapons in Assassin's Creed history. We'd put together this whole content plan to secure those exclusives. And sometimes it wasn't anything like for smaller games. They'd just be like, give us the top slot on GT for the day. And that was probably the most common deal that we struck for the smaller stuff. Uh, a lot of publishers were just happy if we just put it as the top video on game trailers. Because back then we were doing so much traffic, like I would guarantee them, you know, 500,000 views of their trailer or whatever. And for most people, that was enough. But for the bigger stuff, we crack these huge elaborate deals where, you know, we blow it out of top slot of game trailers. Maybe we give them like a site skin or whatever, like on the margins of the website. It would premiere on the TV show on Spike. It would be top slot all weekend long. So I reached out to the publishers and I was just, I was just like, hey, you know, we cracked this deal. It's not our responsibility to make sure these people aren't running this stuff. So the publishers actually ended up contacting Machinima and saying, look, you guys need to take that stuff down or we're never giving you anything again. We'll cut you guys off from review code. We won't let you come to our events anymore. So there's all these kind of, or at least there used to be, things are a little different now. Uh, but there used to be all these levers that you could kind of pull to protect that stuff. Um, so that was what was happening with Machinima. IGN didn't steal content like that. None of the... Machinima was just up and coming at that point. And I think they were maybe a little more brave than they should have been because all they cared about was like building traffic. But like the major sites, like that didn't happen very often. Like IGN never stole stuff like that from GT. Um, Gamevideos.com did a couple times though. Uh, One-Up's competitor to Game Trailers. I don't know if you guys even remember that site, but 
once game trailers launched and we actually talked about this, I think James Milky and I talked about it on three night weekend, or maybe it was, maybe it was someone else, but we did talk about it on that show. Um, but gamevideos.com was a, sprung up and launched by oneup.com and Ziff Davis as a direct competitor to game trailers. Cause game trailers was just exploding. All the other gaming websites were flat or going down. And that was the advent of video really on the internet. And so we were the first ones to kind of get on that wave. Uh, but they launched gamevideos.com and it just did terrible. Like their trailers would do like 200 views or whatever. And they would do, you know, 2 million on game trailers. And we caught them stealing our stuff a couple times. In fact, um, I was at E3 one year and we were at like an after party or whatever. And one of the guys who worked on gamevideos.com was sitting at the same table as me. And I didn't know him that well. I kind of had seen him around at events and stuff like that. Um, and he brought it up. Because I had talked to, I think, Mark McDonald, who was a good friend of mine and who had worked at EGM and all of Ziff's other properties. And was a re- and is a really good dude. He is on um, Giant Bombs Tokyo podcast. Uh, I think it's called 84 or whatever. Um, he's a host of that. And he's great. I love him. He's been a good dude as long as I've known him. And I had talked to Mark McDonald about it. And I was like, Mark, man, like your dudes are stealing our stuff like. You can't do that. Um, and I respect him. And so I didn't want to call the publishers and do to him what I did with Machinima. And so I was like, look, I want to settle this with you like behind closed doors. I don't want this to become a thing in the industry or whatever, because I told him I have a lot of respect for you. And um, I guess he talked to his team. and was like, you guys can't do that, blah, blah, blah. Well, one of the people that he had talked to was at that table and he like, t- like brought it up with me in front of like, all my friends and all these other industry folks. And we got in like an argument about it, like at this E3 party um, where he was like, he basically tried to say the same crap that the guy from Machinima tried to say. It's like, Oh, it's a, if we can get it somehow. Then we could do whatever we want with it. This is free market and blah, blah, blah. And basically it just ended. I was like, look, you can talk to Mark about this. I'm not making a scene in front of the whole industry because your butt hurt over a trailer. So I think what happened was he went back and then I did text Mark and I was like, Mark, I just talked to one of your dudes. He made a scene in front of everybody. And he's like, I'm on it. And then I never heard anything about it again. So um, there was some of that going on. IGM was more guilty of stealing our ideas. So, I mean, people say that Invisible Walls is the first gaming podcast or the first big one. I don't think that that's true. There has to be another one out there that did it before we did. Um, So I don't like blame IGN for like kind of stealing how we did our shit like Invisible Walls or anything like that. But a lot of our features they stole. Like they... They stole comparison videos, like a lot of the big stuff that we spent a lot of time on or a lot of our creative ideas. They started doing their comparison videos, like our retrospectives, our video retrospectives. Once we launched those, they started doing those. Um, But the biggest thing that they really stole was one of our video editors and our best video editor. Um, So we had this guy who and, you know, a lot of our editors were people who were actors and they were just editing video to pay the rent. And, you know, when they weren't at game trailers, they were going out on auditions. And the crazy part is two of those guys are huge stars. One of them, well, I wouldn't say stars, but one of them is um, on CSI now. He's a regular on CSI. Another guy has now been in like five movies. He was on, what was that show that was on AMC? It was like a a horror show. I can't remember what it was, but he was one of the stars in that. And he's been in like four movies now. So some of those guys actually did big stuff. The other half have continued to just be video editors, I think, for the most part. And they got really good. But back then they were not very good. Like some of the editors, it's funny, you know, as a as a supervising producer and and actually Jason Frankovitz is on is on the Zoom call right now. I worked with him at G4. When you're a producer and you've never really cut, 
you kind of just trust the editor that they're working fast and getting things done as quickly as possible. And that's what I had to do at game trailers. And I thought some of the guys were pretty good, but have, having worked in TV for a long time, I knew some of them were slow, but I also knew that they weren't getting paid much. So I wasn't like, a, I wasn't like cracking the whip on them to get stuff done more quickly. Um, but some of the editors were really good. And with our very best editor, who I had pretty much sat down with when we first started doing our video reviews and kind of laid out to him, okay, this is how we're going to do them. This is what you got to look for. This is how you're going to handle sound ups. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what sound ups are, sound ups are the points in an edit, in an edit where the game sound comes up. Um, and it really, it's the difference between a good cut and a bad cut. If you don't work in the industry, you don't even notice it, but it's taken that extra minute to bring that sound up. So maybe it's just like a big explosion or whatever, but it breaks up the voiceover. So it's not just wall to wall talking kind of like how I am right now, actually, <laughs> but it breaks it up and it really gives stuff polish and a professional feel. And so I, I worked on all that stuff with him and he laid down the template. He ended up becoming like our lead video editor who would train all the new video editors who would come in because we had a lot of turnover. We had five guys who were there pretty much the whole time. That the other people would come and go because they get another editing gig where they get paid more or they would get on a TV show and they're like, I can't do it anymore. So he would train all our editors. He was an integral cog to game trailer success. And one day I just came into work and he's like, I'm leaving. And I was like, what? And I was like, I immediately ran to our production coordinator's office. I'm like, we got to give him a bigger raise. Cause I'd already just fought for a raise for him like the month prior. And he had just got the raise. And I, and it was a, Getting anyone a raise at game trailers was a nightmare. Like they didn't want to pay like my team, like anything. They all looked at it like they're just playing games for a living, even though that's total bull crap. Uh, so, but I had fought for a raise with this guy and got it. And the reason we got it was because he was not at that point. He was not just working on game trailers. He was working on stuff for spike TV and spike.com because he was, he was the best we had. Um, and so I fought for that. He had got it. And I was like, Whew, thank God. And a month later, he comes to me. He's like, I'm leaving. And I was like, what? I'm like, dude, I just fought tooth and nail for your raise. And he's like, I know. He's like, but my fiance just got a job up in the Bay Area and I'm heading up there. And I was like, ah, and I immediately I knew what was going to happen. I knew he was going to get a job at IGN. I knew it. And sure enough, three weeks later, IGN hires him. Um, I get like a, an email of condolences from like one of IGN's editors saying thanks because they knew like as soon as he went in there, they were like, oh, OK, this is how they're doing it. And that's exactly what happened. They he went in there. He did exactly what he was doing at Game Trailers. He trained all their editors, had a cut just like Game Trailers. And that's when their video reviews went from these weird, like awkward, poorly edited crap to what they are now. So um, there's nothing you can do about it. I was happy for him. I think he got a raise when he went up there. Um, and, I, and, you know, as long as he's going forward in his career, I was cool with it, but it sucked. And from that point on, like IGN, their production values were pretty much on par with game trailers at that point. And it kind of came down to who do you trust more as far as the editorial. Um, but that's the long winded answer to your question. Any other, any follow-ups? Well, I guess, I guess my original, like I was originally interested in like, if somebody, if another company like Machinima is like stealing your video, like mm -hmm. game trailer video, is it just like a slap on the wrist? Like you just like yell at them or get the publishers to yell at them. And then that's pretty much the end of the story. Well, it fixes it because okay. the publishers will fix it. Sometimes people are respectful and like an EIC just doesn't know what his employees are doing. Like in the case of Mark McDonald and gamevideos.com, that was the case. He's He's like, man, I'm managing three teams right now. He's like, I can't keep track of everything they're doing. He's like, I'll take care of it. 
the case of machinima they were just like screw those guys we're gonna take their video and in that case i needed to go to the publishers and that's what i did and then the publishers said look we're not going to send you early review code anymore and we're not going to invite you to our events anymore if you don't stop this and so they stopped and we never had a problem with it after that so oh, okay. that's generally what happens um if the publishers were not to step in and that could be possible because if it were like ign doing it they're not going to threaten to cut ign off from review code or going to events because ign's too big and they need those eyeballs to see their products so if it were to happen with a publication like that i honestly don't know what i would have done um from my position because at that point I don't hold much of the power because we never did catch IGN. There was one month on Comscore. We were literally like 200,000 users behind IGN, which is just insane because we had only been around at that point for like four years, I think. And IGN had already been around for like 14. Um, and we literally got like within like 200,000 view users on Comscore which is kind of like Nielsen ratings for internet websites. Um, and then that's when YouTube started taking off and we never got that close to them again. And then our number just started going down, down, down until, as you guys all know, it all crashed and went to crap. So um, yeah, that's pretty much how I handled it. If it were IGN stealing our stuff, I don't know what I would have done because they would have held all the cards and I wouldn't have had much power to really affect any change. So what does your workday look like? Uh, like how, how much is it reviewing games? How much is it curating content? Or what else do you do behind the scenes that we don't see? Okay, so let's see. Where do I even begin? Uh, I will say this. So since I've had my health issues, I have not had to curate content as much as I was before. Uh, my typical workday for the past six years up into the last like month has been getting up really early, usually 6.30 or 7 a.m. and start curating. Because what happens is we don't have any people who curate overnight. So Vincent and I go to sleep and then our admin doesn't stop working. So our admin, how it works, our whole admin was built from the ground up to do what Sifted does. So it goes out and it scrapes all the websites, all the YouTube channels, all the Twitch channels, and then pulls it into this interface that we custom built. But it all comes into this big list that we call the reader. Um, and you can just see the headline and the blurb for each story. And there's like an icon that tells you what publication is coming from. And you look at that. Um, and then if you decide that you want to add it, you can click on it and it expands it. It'll show you the whole story. And then you can read the whole story right there in the admin. Then if you decide that, yes, this is going to be added to the site, you click the arrow to the right. And then it goes to a new screen where you do all the work on it. So we write our own blurb there. We rate each story from one to five. And then we tag it to all to the 60 plus channels that are on Sifted. And then you publish it. Um, so in the mornings, I would come in and there would just be the reader would be full, literally with like five or 600 pieces of content that needed to be looked at individually. So generally the beginning of my day, the first like three or four hours would just be curation, just getting like all the hot news up from the morning, anything that happened overnight in Europe. And then there's really no set schedule. It really is based upon the day of the week. So Mondays for me are all pre-production for Game Face. It takes all day working Monday to get ready for the broadcast on Tuesday. So I have to, and I use Sifted for this. I just go to Sifted and I sift the site by the last seven days. and then. I'll probably sift it too by most popular to see what you guys were talking about during the week to see what you guys actually care about. And then I'll also turn off the popular to just see 
based on my sift, what was most popular for the week. And I'll start mapping out like the topics for the show. Um, obviously, I will have already added whatever games I was playing that week into it. And then it's making sure that we have coverage for everything, that we have B-roll to show for everything. Um, and a lot of times, like Monday night overnight, like if I have big chunks of B-roll, I'll render them while I go to sleep. And then Tuesday morning, I get up and I work on all the graphics for the show, like all the lower thirds that appear. I'll get all those done. I'll finalize the rundown for Game Face um, because sometimes on Tuesday morning, a big story will break. So I wait to do the graphics until Tuesday morning. Um, I wait to finalize the rundown for Game Face until Tuesday morning. Uh, then once I do that, I take all that stuff, all the B-roll, um, all the lower thirds, put them on a hard drive, drive over to the studio, and then I have to load it all up into the TriCaster. Um, and that takes about an hour and a half or something like that because you have to stack all the B-roll and the TriCaster so it's in the order of the rundown. You have to get all the graphics in there. Then you have to make sure that everything's set up right, that the zoom is working right, that the cameras are set up and they're in focus and the lighting is right. Um, and that like our backlighting is turned on for the set and stuff like that. Uh, and then we do the show. Then I come back and then I have to generate the show and basically render it so you guys can watch it. And that takes a long time. So I come back here and I render it, crunch it a little bit because the file that we get of the TriCaster is pretty big. Um, and that takes all night. So I'll set it up before I go to bed to render and it'll render overnight. Um, and then I get up in the morning and it's there. And then that begins the process of, of, up, of uh, getting it all the promotion for it ready, like the thumbnail for the show, uh, getting it up on YouTube, making sure there were no copies or eight strikes for the show. And if there were like re-rendering the show again, um, and then just, you know, getting it everywhere, getting it onto our Patreon, getting it on the sifted, whatever. Usually once I finish all that stuff, the show is up, the podcast version is working and there's no issues. And then I'll cut Pactor Factor. Um, and Pactor Factor is a big part of what I do with a lot of my time. Um, because we do three to four episodes a week and it takes, now it probably takes me about five hours to cut an episode of Pactor Factor somewhere around there. And then with Pactor Factor, it's a big job. It, the cutting part of it, the editing part of it, isn't that big a deal. It's it's distributing it out everywhere because Pactor Factor goes on our Patreon, it goes on sifted.net, and it goes on Twitch for our Twitch Prime users. So it has to be uploaded, promoted, all the blurbs and all that stuff added into three different times every time. But you also have to remember, at the same time I'm doing that, I'm getting an episode ready for our YouTube channel that's like a week delayed. So every time I publish an episode of Pactor Factor, it goes to three of those places. And then I also have to publish the episode, the, the episode from the week prior for our YouTube audience. And that takes forever. And then, you know, between all that, I'm working on three night weekend. I'm making calls, sending emails, trying to get people on the show. It was easy at first. It's become really hard now to get hosts on the show. Again, you can probably see there wasn't an episode this week. Um, either people cancel or... They set it up and they're like, oh, well, something came up and now it's in two weeks. There's a lot of legwork involved with that show. If the show happens, generally it's recorded on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, and that takes an hour. And then after that's done, I take that and I have to go through all the process with that show in addition to the Pactor Factor episodes I'm doing. So all this stuff is what takes up the bulk of my time. There's no set schedule. And in between all that stuff, I have to do things like marketing and wrangling code, trying to get review code in from publishers. Um, there's just tons and tons of stuff that I'm doing. Like I've never, I don't think I've ever sat down on the couch and been like, I'm done. It just doesn't happen because there's always something else I can be doing. Like right now I'm trying to get Facebook marketing going. 
Um, we haven't done that for a long time. So I've had to dig back into the Facebook marketing tools. They're completely different now than they were the last time I worked on them. And I have to like learn them all over again. Uh, there's actually a couple of sifters who are kind of helping me on that stuff. Um, there's just always something to do, or I'm working on new graphics or whatever for a show, or I'm working on show ideas, or I'm working with Vincent on game pass or fail. Um, you know, he sends me the script. I edit the script. It, it goes back to him. He gets Mike to voice it. He cuts it. He sends it to me. I just got it this morning, actually the new one. And um, then I look at it. I send notes back to him. He makes all the changes and the fixes. He sends it back to me. Then I have to go through that process again. So I have to upload it to YouTube and then publish it both on Sifted and on Patreon. And at the same time, last week's Game Pass or Fail has to be uploaded and handled for our YouTube audience. That's really what's become the pain is that everything I do, I have to do it twice because I have to publish the new stuff for our patrons and our subscribers in Twitch Prime. And then I always have to publish the old episode for our crew on YouTube. So it's just never ending. It's just a squirrel wheel that I'm always on. And then I haven't even mentioned the fact that I have to play the games. <laughs> and that takes a lot of time. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. I have not finished a game in a really long time because I just don't have the time to do it. And I always have to, I'll play as much as I can. And if for a really good game, I usually get like 20 hours into it before I have to move on to something else because we have to have something to talk about in the next game phase. So I just, there's no time at all. It, it's pretty overwhelming at times, to be honest with you. You have to kind of compartmentalize your life and your time and be like, all right, I'm stopping. Um, I'm not going to think about anything related to sifted right now, because if I do, I'll just go crazy and you won't sleep. And I went through that for the first three years where I literally didn't sleep. So there's a lot of compartmentalization going on mentally for me. Um, and kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, okay, I need to stop. Um, it's been unhealthy. Obviously I've had health problems. I think a lot of it is tied into what I've been doing for the last seven years. Um, I don't think all of it, I think it was just one factor of it. I was completely unhealthy. I fixed a lot of that over the last like two months, which is good. Um, but I'll say this, I don't feel that much different. Like I've changed my diet and like I'm taking all these great vitamins and all this stuff. And like, I don't feel any different. It's like I quit. I used to drink a can of Red Bull every day up until like two years ago. And one day I just quit. And I never felt any different after that either. Everyone's like, that stuff's garbage. Just ruin you. You, you feel like crap and you don't even realize it. I didn't. Like I didn't feel any different when I quit drinking Red Bull. I just ended up saving like 40 bucks a month because that crap's so expensive. So that's the rough um, addition of what I do sort of on a weekly day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but there's a lot more stuff that just kind of happens and appears out of nowhere that I have to deal with. Um, but that's the long and short of it, I guess. So you mentioned kind of like how much you know money you've made over the year and whatnot. So I was just wondering, like, have you ever considered or would you ever consider like selling Sifted if you got a really awesome offer or like some big publication like, you know, IGN or somebody came with to you and was like, hey, we want to by your site. Is that something you would consider? Um, up until this past like six to eight months, no. Um, I When I started Sifted, it, I looked at it like my forever job. I really thought this is the last big project I'm going to have to do. And I'm going to set myself up so that I'll have a job until I'm, a, I'm tired of doing it. And when I'm tired of doing it, I'll figure out what to do with it. I'll sell it to someone or I'll give it to somebody who had worked with me on the site or whatever. Uh, I was going to cross that bridge when I came to it. But we, I mean, doing my taxes, it wasn't a big surprise. Like I could obviously see my bank account throughout the year. Like I was struggling to like pay my rent and pay my bills with what was left over after I had to pay everybody, pay all the utilities and our rent, um, 
and all the overhead that's involved with running a website, you know, our bandwidth bills and all that kind of stuff and our employees and our rent, our utilities at the studio. Um, I was not for the most of last year. It was okay. Probably until like June. Um, but then from like June onward, it got to the point where I was not making enough to cover everything basically. So I wasn't completely oblivious to the fact that I wasn't making that much money, but it's when you do your taxes at the end of the year and you see that tally. And I think a lot of it may have been just denial on my part. Like I didn't want to see it in all honesty. Uh, but when you do your taxes, you have to see it. Um, and so when I saw how much money I made over the last year, I really started kind of digging into the numbers and I went back and looked to see how many of our, cause the, the Patreon's public, and you can see that our numbers are pretty much, it's always $4,000 a month. Uh, but what you guys weren't seeing was that there was still a huge group of people who were subscribing on the site at $4 a month. And when the pandemic hit, it, we just got murdered. Because a lot of the people who, who were subscribing on our site and not on our Patreon, they were watching shows, but they aren't engaging on the site. Like you can hardly ever see them post. And, and sometimes when people, I always get a notification when people cancel. Um, and so through the course of the year, I was like, damn, like it used to be, I get like one email every like month and a half or two months of somebody canceling their subscription. I started getting like four or five a day for like days straight. And I was like, wow, something's going on here. The other thing too, is when people would cancel before I would always write them a personal email. I would email them. I would thank them for supporting us. And, you know, without you, we wouldn't have made it this far, blah, blah, blah. We, we started getting so many cancellations that I couldn't even write the emails anymore. So I wasn't oblivious to what was going on, but I think I was in a little bit of denial um, until I did my taxes this year and kind of saw the final tally. And I realized that we had lost about 75% of the people who had been subscribing on the site. So that was the money that was kind of getting me over the top to pay my bills and kind of all the overhead for the site, but also giving me a little bit of extra money to do things like marketing or pay people to do stuff. Like for instance, you know, you probably, you probably noticed that I've been running TriCaster now for the last like two months. Uh, somebody asked me in our forums, they're like, Oh, is that because you're getting good at it? And I was like, well, it's a, it's a combo of a bunch of things. It's one, I am getting good at it. Like I, it's funny. I can do it now and hold a conversation. It's pretty crazy. Um, I, I actually attribute that to DJing, uh, have having been a DJ for the last 20 years. Cause it's very similar. It's a piece of electronics that you're multitasking with. Um, and so I attribute like how I've been able to run TriCaster and host a show at the same time to my DJ career. Um, but you know, I can't afford to pay a TriCaster TD anymore. That's really why I'm doing it. I would prefer to not have to, uh, but our revenue has just gotten to the point where if I want to be able to pay sort of the more essential employees that do stuff for us, I had to drop our TriCaster TD. Um, so that's pretty much why I'm doing that. Um, as far as like going back to your question, which was, you know, would you consider selling it or whatever? Um, I would now. Um, the problem with selling our website is we have no ads. So the site itself generates no revenue. So if someone were to buy us, they would have to come in and pay to have ads installed on the site. Otherwise, no one wants to buy it because like it doesn't generate any money. Like it's just a pet project for you. Um, you're trying to set up a website you think everybody wants to use. We need to buy a website that makes money. Um, so for, for me to do that, for anyone to want to buy it, it would have to have ads first of all. And that hasn't happened. So um, with how you like have your card set up, like how easy would it just be to slot in, you know, an ad every, you know, fourth or fifth card. That's exactly what we are planning on doing. So ads okay. are coming by the way. Yeah, I was gonna say, I don't know how you're generating the cards. Um, you know, I, I work in software, so oh, okay. I kind of understand, but you know, I just didn't know depending on how you had it set up, like 
That's how the ads are going to work. They're changing gonna what you know database calls it's making to slot in the ad. Yeah, so they're built dynamically. Every one of our modules are built. It's just taking all the information, the thumbnail, the information we've added in our admin, and it just assembles it live, basically. Which is why I keep saying, like, what Brent did is amazing because you can just scroll forever. It's an endless scroll. And our site is creating all that stuff dynamically on the fly based upon the information in our admin. So that is the plan is that when ads come to Sifted, they will just be a module. Um, I don't think we're going to do one every four or five. Like it'll probably be one every like 20 or something like that. Um, and we'll probably have ads in our forums and things like that. Um, but yeah, they're coming. And I think once that happens, then the potential sale of Sifted will be a lot more uh, likely. But right now, I think it would be impossible to sell it to somebody, to be perfectly honest. And if I were to leave or whatever reason, I would probably, if the ads weren't done or ready, I would either just bite the bullet and pay to get the ads put on the site and then try to sell it. Or I would just give the site to the community, in all honesty, and let them do whatever they wanted to do with it. Um, because, you know, our community is really awesome. It's the one thing I'm probably most proud about with Sifted is the people who use it and the people who come to it. Like everyone is just an adult and acts like an adult. And I think that's really hard to find. I mean, go to YouTube and I think you can see what I'm talking about there. So um, yeah, it's tough um, because it's like, you work so hard to build the audience and the subscribers and then COVID comes and it just wipes out like, I mean, the 75% on our site ended up representing like a huge chunk of our overall revenue. I mean, just to lose it in 12 months time or less, it's really hard. So you kind of stare at the prospect of building it back up again. And I think about, man, it took us five years to do it the first time. Can I do that again? Um, and I'm getting older. Like I, I need to start thinking responsibly fiscally about retirement and things like that. And I know I've said that before, but I'm older. I keep getting older. I'm not a vampire, so I keep getting older. So it becomes more important to me as time goes on and more important to my wife. Um, we're both kind of thinking now, okay, what, you know, we're supposed to retire in like 15 or 16, 20 years or whatever. Are we gonna be ready for that? And what I'm doing on Sifted, it's not preparing me for retirement at all. So, um, we are also working on right now, um, our site architect before he works on ads, he's working on setting up like an email server for us. Like we have email set up. So people register, they get an email and then they get a confirmation email and that kind of stuff. But I've never had the ability to just send out emails to our user base. Um, and so here in the next, hopefully couple weeks, we're going to have that opportunity set up in SendGrid is a company that we use for our emails. And I'm going to start sending out emails to people who have ever registered on Sifted. And hopefully it can get some people back into the fold. The whole idea was to have that done when we lifted Sift, when we launched Sifted 2.0. Um, the whole idea was like, Hey, it's Sifted 2.0. If you left and you haven't visited for a while, come check it out. Well, Brent again, just couldn't get Sifted 2.0 done in time. And so we ended up having to hired this other guy who's working with us now to finish some of that stuff off, which he pretty much did. And now we're getting him on new projects on the site, like ads and uh, the email stuff. So um, I'm hoping that once we have the ability to email people who have registered for Sifted, and we're not going to be jerks about it. We're not going to spam people or anything, or we're not going to just sign them up for some newsletter or anything. Uh, we're very cognizant of treating people who have ever worked with us with respect. Uh, but we are going to send out, you know, maybe one or two emails a year just telling people, hey, this is what we're up to right now. This is some of our new shows. Um, there's a lot of people who were on board with Sifted at the beginning who left for whatever reason, who probably haven't visited the site in three years and have no idea that it was completely redesigned. They have no idea that we have all these different shows now. Um, and so that's kind of the plan. And then we'll just see what happens and, and we'll take it from there. Jason, do you have a question? I do. Um, I have a I have a 
uh, Jason, by the way, worked with me at G4 and Tech TV for like five years. Yes. Uh, Shane was uh, my my boss. I wasn't going to um, say that. <laughs> uh, you you was were I an asshole boss, Jason. <laughs> no, no. You know what? I because I now that I now that I'm, you know, been following the site for a while and, you know, I listen to Game Face all the time and like I'm I'm. I, I feel I'm not the most active member of the community, but whatever, I'm plugged in. And so I've thought a lot about, and especially now that, you know, G4 is coming back, like I've just had a lot of reason to think about, you know, how tech TV was and how G4 mm -hmm. was. And you were a really good boss. You were very like fair and knowledgeable. Thank you. Um, I remember, uh, I remember like early on, you told me to do something and I thought, like, maybe there's like a cheaty way I can kind of do it more easy. <laughs> and uh, and so I did it my, my kind of cheating way, but it didn't work. And you you were pissed and you <laughs> sent me an email like the reason you don't do it that way is because this and this and this happens. And now, you know that. Yeah, that was like, it did happen. Damn it. <laughs> All right. I'm 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 going to have to do it the way that it needs to be done, not the way I prefer. <laughs> yeah. Also, by um, the way, Jason does the voiceover in Three Night Weekend for the roundup at the end of the show. He says, like, games and TV and film. That's him. He was also the disembodied voice on X-Play. Do you remember the guy at the beginning of the show who would be like, here's Adam and Morgan? <laughs> that was Jason. Yeah. And he also yeah. was my assistant, like, working editorially. So he would help me get code in from publishers and would follow up with them if I didn't have time and, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, that's why when you when you talk about all the stuff that you're doing now, I just think like, oh, so he's basically like an entire distribution company and a production company in one guy. It's insane. It really it is, is insane. Um, yeah. And my 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 hat is off to you. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> no, sure. no, it isn't. And I I, I love the, the last question that you just got, because, you know, if you if if someone is smart enough to offer to buy sifted from you at some point, like. They, they would be lucky to get it. And I would love to see you get, you know, some type of remuneration, some type of, you know, acknowledgement for this thing that you've built, which is really cool and impressive and worthwhile. Well, the best acknowledgement I could get is if more people sign up on our Patreon. Like I, <laughs> I want it to continue. I don't want to leave sifted. You know, I want sure, this to sure. work. So that would be the best thing that could happen. You know, there's been, there seems to have been, and this isn't a very, I haven't written this down. So it's going to be a little mushy. It's all good. Um, there, there seems to be like this, this recent debate about, does it make more sense to like spend eight years making, you know, a, a, a very high production value game that costs $200 million or should we, uh, you know, put out a game like once every 18 months, it's a lot cheaper and it's not as fancy, but you know, there's more content, more ideas. It's like, you know, is it bigger and fewer or smaller and more often type of the argument. And what I was wondering, and, and if you have some insight about it is what are the big development shops? What are the big develop, what are the big publishers doing to make it easier and to streamline producing these, you know, triple A or, or quad A games um, uh, going forward, because it seems like that's the it seems like that's the part of the process of making games that has really resisted optimization. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's like you know there's no shortage of ideas. There's no shortage of people who want to do it, who want to 
you know, create assets or program or do all that other stuff. But what about the actual steps of building a game? Is anybody thinking about making easier or better or faster so that they can make games more easily? Well, here's, here's the thing. So the development time for games over the last 15 years hasn't changed that much. Um, if you go back to like the PlayStation and N64 days, like most of those games were developed in nine or 10 months and for like a million or $2 for the last 15 years, when we kind of the advent of the quote unquote, triple a game where people expected elaborate real-time cinematics and things like that, because before that, a lot of that stuff was handled by some CG studio that wasn't even a part of the development studio. So about 15 years ago, that's when all cinematics pretty much became real time and, the project of developing a AAA game kind of came into the modern age. And back then, a lot of the time was spent working on in the engine, trying to get the engine to work, trying to get cinematics to work in the engine, trying to get physics to work in the engine. A lot of teams were building the engines themselves because the middleware at that time wasn't as prevalent as it is now because now you have like four or five different engines you can choose from to build your game that you can just not even really rent. A lot of cases you can use these engines for free. Back then, there were there was middleware. You still had to kind of build your own engine, but then you could kind of snap on like a physics system from physics or whatever, or from Havoc. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so you ended up working with several vendors on each game. You had your engine and you're snapping on these parts so you didn't have to build it yourself. But with the advent of like Unreal and Unity and the Source Engine and engines like that, slowly over time, all that stuff has become built into that middleware. And, and most games these days are not built on a custom engine. Most of it is built in one of these middleware programs. So you think, okay, that's saving them a bunch of time. But what happens is that time ends up getting replaced by other things like expectations for games. So now it's not just good enough to have a real-time cinematic. It's like they have to look like Naughty Dog's real-time cinematic. So the time it takes to build stuff inside the games takes way longer than it did before, even though you're now saving time because you're not having to write to the metal and create it from scratch. So what it ends up doing is just kind of wiping out the time saving that you get from using middleware because now the expectations for games are so high. Um, right. To your question of, you know, is it better to make a big game and that sells 20 million and it takes seven years to make, or is it better to release one every 18 months? Really, I think the only way to make a good game in 18 months or two years is to make it very similar to the game that you made before. So mm. if you're call of duty or if you're Madden or if you're FIFA and you already have that engine there and a lot of it is just like asset swapping or adding new voiceover, building the new cinematics, um, but you have the core of the engine there that you can just kind of build on every time. I think it's possible to do it in 18 months to two years. Even that's pushing it though, these days, I think. Um, so Financially, you know, I'm not PAC. I think PAC's better to answer that stuff on what, what he thinks is the better call. And that's, he does kind of talk about that, I think, in uh, this week's show. Um, but if you're asking me if I were running a publisher and would I rather have my teams working seven years on one project, I would say I'd rather go to the two, two to three year route because games are risky. You don't know, no matter how good your game is, it could totally bomb. It really could. If people just aren't interested in it, think about how many clones there have been of Overwatch or yeah. any any game as a service for that matter and how many of them have succeeded like hardly any um and along like think about how many games as a service games there have been that tanked like and outriders comes out like when i first saw that game i didn't look at it and i was like oh this is the one that's finally going to do well 
but it did. Like, in fact, it didn't look any different to me at first than any other game as a service that I had seen. Like, to me, if I had looked at Anthem and looked at Outriders, I would have said that Anthem was going to be the game that was going to do well. And it did okay, but it didn't end up being the game that did well. It was Outriders that ended up being that. So there's so much risk involved in game development that it would be, as a manager, it would be really hard for me to sign off on a seven-year development cycle. And I think that's what they learn with Days Gone. Um, to kind of bring it back right. to what everyone's talking about right now. And I think that's what Sony learned is it's like, well, seven years is a long time to make a game when it only sells 4 million copies. You know, they're cool with that when The Last of Us Part Two sells 23 million in three months or whatever it does. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a big risk to take. And development is so expensive. I mean, I'm sure you've heard Pactor say the average developer gets paid over 100K. So yeah. that adds up real fast. So you're making big bets, you're taking big risks. And I would rather take a risk on something that if it fails, I'm only in the hole for two years of development instead of seven years for development. It seems like every question has been more about the industry and, and the production and all that. And I, like, I just have a game question. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, peek behind the curtain, you know, they want to see what. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. It's yeah. absolutely fascinating. Um, Konami, like, holy crap, what are they doing? Yeah. There's so many rumors about Silent Hill and, and like two possible games in development. And then there's been shutdown of some of those rumors. Like what's what's going on with the Silent Hill franchise? And is there any hope of like Team Bloober or someone actually coming out with a quality game for that franchise? Um, hmm. Let's see what is going on at Konami is, is is exactly what I was just talking about. Konami figured out a long time ago that taking six or seven years to develop a game is a really bad idea. And I think, unfortunately, for the rest of us, is one, that it owns a lot of IP that we really care about. And two, is that Konami has become really risk-averse. It, I feel like, ultimately, it felt burned by Kojima. I think it, you know, the Game of the Year awards or whatever accolades he earned Konami, I think they care about that a lot less than how much money he put into their coffers. And I think Konami knew for a long time that they probably wanted to get rid of him and stop working with him. But I think it also knew that it would have been a PR nightmare if it had, which it did end up becoming. Uh, but I think ultimately what Konami did was it just looked at where the re revenue and the money was coming from. And it was making so much money on its pachinko machines and mobile games that it was like, why are we doing this other stuff? I think it just, it lost the feeling or the want for prestige, which is hard for a Japanese company to do. Um, it's very important to Japanese companies, how they handle their business, how they're perceived, their honor. And I think Konami honestly held on a lot longer than it wanted to dealing with Kojima. And I think now Konami's laughing a little bit because it's like, huh, okay, PlayStation, you're going to have to learn a lesson that we learned. And it did. So think about it. He leaves Konami for the reasons I just said. He goes to PlayStation. And I will say this. He did develop Death Stranding very quickly. He got it done way faster than I thought he was going to. But still, you know, Sony spent a big chunk of money on that game to be developed. And chances are they probably beefed up his studio and threw another 80 employees at his team to help him get it done in time. So he didn't fall into the same trap he had fallen into before. But the fact of the matter is, like, that game probably barely broke even or didn't break even. So now Sony learns the lesson that Konami learned. To Sony's credit, it figured it out much more quickly. So I'm guessing probably for Konami after Metal Gear Solid 3, it was probably ready to cut bait with Kojima. It stuck around for two more sort of cycles of Metal Gear. Sony's credit, it took one cycle. And it was like, nope, this isn't how we do things. This isn't going to work. Love you, respect you, but 
you can shop your games around to somewhere else. And so now we're hearing the rumors that he's, you know, sniffing around Xbox and Xbox will do the same thing. But I will say this Xbox is probably going to be a lot more tolerant of sort of his money wasting ways. Um, I think they will give him plenty of time and I think they will look at the project and not force it out. And not that it's not that I feel like Death Stranding was forced out. I do feel like by the time the project rounded into form and Sony knew what it had, it was too late. Um, and I think Xbox, maybe the game will get to that point and they'll know what they have. And if they're not happy with it, I think they'll let him keep working on it. Whereas PlayStation was like, okay, we got to get this out. Um, so back to your question about what, what Konami's up to. Honestly, it, it's hard for me to begrudge Konami for what it's doing. It's allowing outside partners to keep its IP alive just in case one day it decides to ever dive back into full-on game development. Those IPs aren't dead. Um, and I mean, I think most people would argue that the third parties haven't done much with the IP. Most of the games um, that have come out based upon Konami IP have been terrible, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, but I think Konami just wants to stay relevant um, just so you know its IP doesn't completely die. Um, but I think it's just more than happy just creating mobile games and making a ton of money off Pachinko. And I'm sure that business is hurting right now because of the pandemic. People aren't able to go into pachinko parlors in Japan like they used to. I mean, think about pachinko, those balls. I mean, they could carry that virus all over the place real quick. So it might be in a pinch now. And maybe it is in a place where it's like, well, crap, like our pachinko business is going down the toilet. Maybe we do need to start re like reinvigorating our console development. And to answer your question about Silent Hill, I do think we'll see another Silent Hill game. Uh, do I think it'll be Kojima who will develop it? Probably not. Um, I don't think Konami wants anything to do with him anymore. I don't think they trust him to get stuff done on time. Um, but I will say, I, another Silent Hill's coming. <laughs> it's being worked on right now. Konami, I mean, I, I just think people have to accept it's never going to be the same again. It's never going to go back to having E3 press conferences and one Mirian troops and all that stuff. Um, we love to laugh at Konami back then, but I think now maybe a lot of people regret it because they're gone and it's a big piece of nostalgia that's kind of left the industry. Uh, but I think it's doing what's right for its business. Like if I was a stockholder at Konami, I'd be happy with what it's done, to be honest with you. As a game fan, it kind of hurts though. Uh, if you, Shane, had like three things that would help you with Sifted or help you with your production or make things uh, like simpler or easier that aren't like, you know, aren't subs and aren't, you know, uh you like the normal metrics mm -hmm. um like like what is your what is your wish list to like make your life easier at sifted what what would those things be i mean it really just goes back to support um i mean you remember what, what it was like when we worked at tech tv and g4 you know i we had a producer and we had talent and we had a video editor and i'm doing all those jobs um and i had never done most of those jobs until i started sifted i was ne had never edited video until i started sifted it became a necessity to do so um, I was a producer, you know, I wasn't even on camera at G4 or tech TV. Um, and so I was kind of forced to do that at game trailers uh, because we needed people on shows and we auditioned people and they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And I'm like, I'm not going to roll out content like this unless we have people on there that are going to represent the site the way it should. So um, people and I, and really the root of the problem is just money period. I made a huge <laughs> mistake. The biggest mistake I made with sifted was not getting outside investment period. Um, when we were a startup, because I invested all my own money to build the site and launch the site. And in all honesty, I was very naive. I really thought that more people would be like Jay Lynn 
And I really thought more people would kind of seek me out, even though as time went on, I probably should have got the hint, you know, as the site kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed, I should have figured out at that point, okay, just saying, Hey, I'm back with a new, whatever, isn't going to be enough. And I didn't like, I never got that hint. And that's totally my fault. Uh, but it, so I didn't take the hint and I launched the site without any outside investment. And then when like, so the day the site launched, like the beta was good. Like we had a lot of people sign up for the beta and I was like, if, 50% of the people on this beta sign up. Like, I'm good. Like, that'll give me a nest egg that I can then dump into marketing and into employees and off we freaking go. And the day the beta ended, I think the final number was 10% of the people actually ended up subscribing out of the people that were in the beta. And like, yeah. I cried. Literally that day, uh -huh. I, I bawled. And my wife was like, it's okay. You actually know my wife, Jason. Yes. It's okay. Like, you're just getting started. And I knew, I, I didn't... I, was, I wasn't like, okay, it's like Sifted is doomed at that point. I just knew right then that I was going to have to do what I've done for the last six years, just totally bust my ass just to make it survive, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and even after that, and then so then the panic rushes in. Then you're like, oh, wow, I don't have enough money to market. I don't have enough money to follow this plan that I had created before I launched the site. So it's a scramble then. It's like, all right, we have this much money. What's the best? What's the best thing I can do with it? And to me, the best idea was bringing in shows. So like Platinum Journey, like we did like a you may, I don't even know if you were around then, Jason, but we did like a sifted film festival where we had people like send us their videos that they were working on uh, stuff that didn't have a big audience on YouTube and maybe was, maybe was struggling to get eyeballs on it. And um, we did a competition and we picked a winner from the competition and we signed that show and I started paying for Platinum Journey to come on sifted. And, you know, after like six months or three months, he couldn't deliver the show on time. And I wasn't being a jerk about it or anything, but he was just like, I feel too much pressure um, mm. to get it done on time. And I don't want to feel that anymore. So I just want to start my own YouTube channel. So that went away. But I invested my money in ultimately it ended up being the wrong things. I should just dumped it all in marketing. And I was also so scatterbrained and, and so scrambly, if that's a word, I think I just made up a word, that I didn't even it didn't even occur to me that I should start going and trying to get investors. Um, I like the best thing I did was like, I went to a couple like dinner parties with like angel investors and stuff like that. Um, but nothing ever came out of it. And I got discouraged very quickly because <laughs> I felt like I, the biggest complaint everybody had when the site first launches, there's not enough content and I was killing myself. And so to me, I was like, all right, well, I can't lose these people or I'm really screwed. So I just put my head down and just was cranking as much content as I could I should have had a bigger 30,000 foot view of everything and been like, you know what? These people aren't going to be enough to build a crazy successful business anyway and not to forsake them. But the smarter thing for me to do would be try to get investors and get like a huge chunk of money that I could then use on marketing and things like that. And I didn't. Um, and then what happens is when I finally realized it probably about a year in, I was like, this isn't going to work. Like I need a big infusion of cash. Then you're not a startup anymore and nobody cares. So once your website's out and running and everything, and it's already established, like I couldn't get people to even talk to me about it anymore. They're like, oh, it says here that your site launched like 18 months ago. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, you're not really a startup. And I'm like, what? I feel like I'm a startup. <laughs> I still feel like I'm a startup after all this time. Yeah, yeah. So it was just all these factors that contributed to it. But ultimately, <laughs> ultimately it really come down to money. That's what the biggest issue was. We never had enough of it. Um, it was really hard at first because our revenue was erratic. So we launched tons of people signed up. So at the turn of the year, we get this big chunk of money and then we just get like 
this kind of low steady stream the rest of the year is very hard to like budget and manage anything because if stuff came up, you maybe not, you wouldn't have the cash to do anything about it or kind of act on it. So, and that's when, you know, our users were like, you guys should go to Patreon. And that has been helpful is having that steady amount of money that you can rely on um, mm -hmm. every month. So, you know, you're gonna be able to pay the bills, you know, you're going to be able to pay all your employees. I know I'm going to make at least a little bit of money. So I'm not losing a ton of money every month. That was a huge relief, but you also, when you would get that big chunk of revenue at the beginning of the year, you, your eyes would kind of light up and you'd be like, Oh, what can I do with this? And it would make you at least think about it. Like, okay, yeah. I have this big chunk of cash. Maybe I can do something big with this that can make a difference. But now I'm on the Patreon squirrel wheel, living hand to mouth. And I don't think as big as I used to anymore about the business. So there's drawbacks to everything, obviously. But um, all I can say is I've done the best that I can. I have no regrets. I have killed myself for this site. I've killed myself for the content. Um, I have given it everything I've got. Um, yeah. And so if things ultimately don't work out and this isn't my forever job, I don't regret it, one, because I've met all you awesome people and have built this really cool community with the help of everybody else. Um, and I gave it everything. And that's all you can do. All you can do is your best. That's it. Nothing beyond that. So that's kind of the way I live my life. Everything I do... I do my best at it. And when you do that, you're not going to be salty if things don't work out your way because that's all you could have done. And so I've done that with Sifted. I do it with pretty much everything in life. That way I end up having no regrets. Well, I'll tell you, I am, um, uh, I, before I worked with you at tech TV, I was like a startup guy, like, you know, software programmer. And I had another software startup that I launched after I left G4. So I've done two startups. And um, not one of them has been a fraction as accomplished or long lasting or successful as what you have done with Sifted this whole time. It is just a brutal, uh, very yes. rewarding, you know, very educational and really enriching experience to take. But it's really hard. And it can also people be very demoralizing so much too. That they don't really realize <laughs> how, how hard it is. It's a roller coaster so, of emotions. Um, yeah. Because sure. you get a win and you're on cloud nine, and then the very then next the day, something else could happen and you're down in the dumps. So yeah. you have to yeah. learn how to manage it and try to keep an even keel. And I think I've managed that pretty well, to be honest, but it's been hard. There's no denying it. Like, you know, everything people told me before I started my company ended up being true. They're like, get ready. You know, it's hard. There's a reason why most businesses don't last a year. And if yeah. I was working, in human hours, Sifted wouldn't have lasted a year. So people are like, why do you work 70, 80 hour weeks? Because I have to, if, it, if I didn't do it, how it works. we That's wouldn't be sitting here talking right now. It would be, it would have been an over a long time ago. So um, I feel very fortunate that I have a group of dedicated people who are really behind me. I mean, I see it like when the Patreon turns over and if we lose a bunch of people, I can see our audience are like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to bump up my pledge for this month to try to cover that hole. I see all of it and I appreciate it so much. Everyone who has pitched in here or there to just kind of keep us up above that level to keep our head above water. And uh, I really appreciate it. So but with that, I think I got to go because I have to go get that first shot of Moderna. And <laughs> hopefully I don't feel like crap afterwards. Thanks to everybody who jumped in to Ask Shane Anything this month. I really appreciate it. I hope all you guys will come back uh, for next month's episode. It's always the second or third Saturday of the month. And again, only people who pledge at $7 a month or more I can participate in the call, but everyone ultimately gets to participate in the show. So thanks again to everybody who showed up. You guys have a great weekend and I'll talk to you guys soon.